Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People will have different views on us. Some people don't like the idea we exist. I respect their views there. I can assure them, though, as the Director of Security, I wouldn't want to live in a surveillance state. But I'm very happy to live in a state where we have laws that guide all of us and direct us and actually enable ASIO. Hello, good people, and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host and a political editor of Guardian Australia, except, hmm... Spoiler alert, you're not. You're with my wingman, Daniel Hurst, who covers defence and security issues in the Bureau at Parliament House. Now, Daniel's uh, in the pod. He is taking over the microphone this week because he has lined up a conversation with the head of ASIO. Uh, The reason that Mike Burgess is in the chair this week is because the ASIO boss uh, gave his second, I believe, annual assessment of the threat levels and the security risks that Australia faces. Uh, It was a very interesting speech. There was lots in it. Uh, He observed that the coronavirus pandemic had seen more people spending time at home and therefore more time enmeshed in the echo chamber of the internet and on a pathway to radicalisation, which sounds moderately scary. Uh, Burgess also revealed in this speech that ASIO had removed what he termed a nest of spies from Australia last year. You know, again, a bit tantalising, a bit lacare. But uh, Burgess also caused a stir, uh, certainly in political and, uh, and, and in analyst circles, by tracking away from terms like right-wing extremism and Islamic extremism. Now, this track away is happening at a time when agencies have been warning about the threats uh, faced by far-right extremism. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that Daniel and I spoke to James Patterson, who is the chair of Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee just a few weeks ago. We thought it was a good week, basically, for Daniel to sit down with Mike, chew the fat, see things through the lens, I guess, of the person charged with maintaining Australia's security at a really critical time. Uh, Just how is ASIO tackling foreign interference and espionage? Uh, Can people in a a democracy disagree with national security laws without being branded unpatriotic? Why do we always seem to see more powers granted to ASIO but rarely a rollback? Are we sort of creeping in the direction of a surveillance state? It's all meaty stuff and Daniel's going to explore this with Mike Burgess over the next little bit. Mike Burgess, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. 
now, to start with the obvious, it's not very common for an ASIO Director General to sit down for media interviews. Why did you agree to this interview? Uh, well, first of all, I can say, yes, you, you're right to point out this is probably not the comfortable space of an intelligence agency head. Um, but fundamentally for me, I'm a big believer in we have to explain why ASIO exists, um, the role we play, not necessarily how we do it for reasons I've discussed the other night at my threat assessment, but I think it's important in our society people know that ASIO's there, know that ASIO is Australia's Security Intelligence Service and actually what that means and at the same time being able to explain the security threats to our country that actually matter to every one of us in this country. So I think that's incredibly important. Um, of course, I also do it because actually getting our brand out there is important for attracting the men and women, the people that we need for ASIO to do its job because we're the country's security service and actually we need to represent the country we're here to protect. We might come back to some sort of accountability issues towards the end, but on the threat assessment that you spelled out this week, um, uh, one of the things that you raised that's caused a lot of attention is the, the shift in language when it comes to violent extremism, the new terms of religiously motivated violent extremism and ideologically motivated violent extremism. Can you just explain why you've made that change or why you've unveiled those umbrella terms? Sure. So the thinking is, um, if you look at the threat landscape um, in the terrorism space, so threats to life, there are a whole range of ideologies at play, and it's the ones that look to violence. So violent extremists is the one that we focus on. And our current labels uh, were too simple and did not fit the ideology or the security-relevant behaviours that we're focusing on. So simply saying it's the right of the spectrum or it's Islamic extremists is too simple. There are ideologies out there, such as the involuntary celibate or incel ideology, which doesn't fit in that category. And it's taking the language to a more explainable level of the two umbrella terms. Uh, I've noted, though, some commentators, which is great about our democracy, that we're all free to comment on everything we say, and that's great. So let me comment back on them. Um, people who are suggesting that we're banning words, that's just simply ridiculous. These are umbrella terms. And when we see a Sunni-based extremist or a member of ISIL killing people or wanting to kill people, I will use that language. When I see an extreme right-wing group such as neo-Nazis or National Socialist Network wanting to promote violence, we'll take action and I will say their name or the group name that they in fact give themselves. So we're not banning terminology. So you are still prepared to say extreme right-wing yes. terror in cases when, when, that when, it, when it matters and when that is sensibly there. But I just wouldn't simply talk about extreme right-wing ideologies. I talk about ideological motivated violent extremists or extremism because that's what I'm focusing on. Because our job in the end independent of whether it's religious or some other ideology, it's actually identifying the people and calling it out and stopping it and actually understanding it so others in our system can help remove that problem or deal with that problem in our society because in the end it's a shared responsibility of how these things happen and how we can counter them. Do you understand why some people are confused about this change happening now? It's followed... Um, You'd be aware of government senators, government members raising concern about the terminology right-wing extremism. Um, did you experience any political pressure, direct or indirect, to make this change? So no political pressure. Um, yes, you're right. People have questioned me, not just on the use of the term extreme right-wing. We, this organisation, others have questioned in terms of when we're labelling 
Islamic extremism or Islamist, because, you know, we could get into a debate around the term Islamist and what that means. Um, but it's not in response to that. It's simply in response to the threat environment as we see it. The range of ideologies and the umbrella terms are far more helpful for us and the police and others. And of course, I'm not banning language and I will continue to use it when I need to call out specifically what the subset of this ideology is or at the core is promoting this violence. So just to close off the language discussion, did you discuss this with your minister? Did he ask for this change? The minister did not ask for this. Supported it? The minister noted that I was doing it. I informed him some time ago that we were looking at it and you've got to know when ASIO does something, we don't just do it on a whim. Actually, we have deep analytical thinkers here and we go through a structured analytical process and we've done that and we've come up with our new terminology. I informed my minister we're doing it. He had no input into it, no say over it. He trusts me to do my job. We're doing our job. And it's not, as Greg Sheridan in The Australian put it, it's not um, a mealy-mouthed concession to the enemies of the West. I enjoy reading the press, and uh, it's a gr another great thing about our uh, society, but no, I actually fundamentally disagree with Greg. Okay. Now, um, it, this week marks the two-year anniversary of the Christchurch attack when a right-wing extremist from Australia killed more than 50 Muslim worshippers in New Zealand. Uh, what lessons has your agency learned from that event and could it happen here? Sure. So that's obviously a very um, a horrific event, um, an indication, sadly, that there will be individuals who are motivated by you know, ideologies and a range of ideologies or one specific one, and that can result in a significant loss of life. So it's a terrible event. Um, for us, um, you know, we've had our eye on other forms of ideological extremism for many years now. We've been very open about that in previous years. Uh, we are reporting, as I've openly said, we've seen a growth in that. Um, our caseload has gone from 30 to 40%. Um, there's something we need to understand why that's happening in the world and why that's happening here in Australia. So direct lessons, no, other than it's an example of this can happen for us and uh, we continue to focus on identifying individuals or groups that are going to do these violent acts and acts of terrorism. And our focus continues on that. And I think uh, we're demonstrating that. You see the police take action. Um, there have been a number of arrests and disruptions over the last couple of years on a whole range of ideologies. Uh, unfortunately, it's the threat landscape we have to deal with as a society. Terrorism threat level will remain probable. That means there are groups and individuals with capable intent to conduct terrorism acts onshore. We remain focused on that. No direct lessons from it? No, no, because it's an event that happened in another country. Um, yes, we looked at the individual and uh, what we knew about him at the time, but he was a young man when he left this country. Mm. Um, you said in your speech there's a you're concerned about the, the younger age of people being attracted to ideologically driven extremism. Why do you think people are being attracted to this or being radicalised at a younger age? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, uh, to be honest with your audience, we do not fully understand this. There are a number of uh, global factors. Um, it's, you know, you can be your family situation, your local situation, maybe some cultural input, a whole range of factors. The technology of this world, the connectivity is brilliant, but it enables people to find things that can inspire them or radicalise them. Um, so a number of factors at play and we and our partners are working hard to try and understand this because 
with a better understanding, maybe society can actually, that's the biggest part of the defence in terms of our collective acceptance of this. Um, and I should say, you know, the National Security Hotline actually works really well. Part of the fact that our caseload has increased is because we have people reporting their concerns. And that's a really good thing because we'll investigate and we investigate everyone in private because sometimes we get asked to look at something or suggested we should look at something and those people are innocent. We'll do our lines of inquiry to satisfy ourselves. There's nothing security relevant. If there is, we'll keep going up that stack of authorization and authority to either determine it's not a problem or not. So society, all of us reporting and observing this behaviour is critically important. And what is the role for um, political leaders, for the media about social cohesion? Like, does it make your job harder when exclusive messages are promoted? Yeah. When, when social cohesion is undermined in Australia? I, I absolutely recognise that our political environment and the, um, dare I say, combative nature of politics sometimes can be unhelpful, but I kind of like to think that most people, including most politicians, are actually really good people. But I recognise occasionally some people who might come off on a certain view or say something, actually it could be unhelpful. But my role isn't to criticise politicians for doing their jobs or actually in our three societies saying what they think. Of course, if I saw something that I thought was unhelpful, I might might have a conversation to an individual, but that's something I'd have to think closely about because my job is not in, to interfere in the politics of our country. You're not going to give details, but have you had any recent discussions about that sort of thing with politicians? I have general conversations with uh, politicians about, uh, for example, and this is selfish, but don't make ASIO the political thing. We've got a job to do. My organisation is apolitical. We're here to serve the country. Don't bring us into it and that generally does help. But of course, I recognise sometimes we might be brought into it, but that's our democratic system at play and I'm not going to criticise it. I was going to ask um, what measures you take to make sure that the agency remains independent of politics. Do you take any personal steps to ensure that independence? Sure. So People my... don't see what happens behind the scenes. Our listeners might wonder what the interactions are, you know, how you how you deal with those interactions with the government. Sure. So my interaction with the government and all members of parliament is uh, highly respectful. Um, but the, the way we handle that, though, is not my personal actions, actually, although, of course, the, yes, there are some judgments in all of this. Um, the law is very clear on what ASIO can and can't do and how we're operating. Um, we are subject to oversight, including the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, which is a, an authority, an individual with standing powers of a royal commission. Um, that is a great enabler and a great restrainer of our organisation, keeps us legal, helps people to be assured that we are legal and proportionate. Is it legal? Is it right? So that helps. The law helps. And of course, my the way I carry out my authority and my accountability and responsibilities as Director General is critical. If I was you know, asked to do something that was unlawful, I wouldn't do that. And But I've never found that in my entire career on and I've not found it in this position either. Would you welcome more resources for the Inspector-General um, to be able to monitor? I have uh, n no issue with the Inspector-General getting more resources, but actually that's not for me to determine. I'd let uh, Dr Jessup speak for whether he um, or his organisation has problems there. But of course, 
it's a matter of record in terms of they have increased in size because they've been given an increased scope, but the rest is for him to argue his case. Just borrow on this line of thought, what do you say to the argument that national national security laws in Australia tend to, um, powers tend to be beefed up even though there are sunset clauses added um, they tend to be rolled over and there doesn't tend to be a return to, you know, once once the laws are toughened in Australia on national security um, and your and your powers, they don't get they don't tend to get rolled back. A couple of things there. From my point of view, the laws, um, as we argue for changes or the ones we currently have um, where we're asked about them, um, it's driven by the threat environment. So terrorism threat level remains at probable and we don't see that changing anytime soon. Espionage and foreign interference is an unacceptably high level. Um, I think the laws are actually commensurate to the threat environment we face. And I'd be the first person to acknowledge if terrorism was no longer a problem and there weren't individuals that want to harm or kill fellow Australians, and if spies stopped spying and governments stopped interfering, then the parliament should be discussing what laws does this country need and what laws does ASIO need. And actually ASIO's resources could um, drop if the threat environment was to uh, get safer and better. But um, as I said, terrorism threat level remains at probable. Espionage and foreign interference is unacceptably high level. I don't quite agree that the laws keep on getting tougher and never get taken back from us, but that is a matter for Parliament. And just as a matter of principle, um, is it possible, in your view, for politicians to disagree about the level of powers that ASIO should be granted without it being a matter of being unpatriotic? Oh, absolutely. That's how our Parliament works. People and politicians are entitled and they have a right to have their view. Um, Again, in the heat of the battle when uh, politicians are debating legislations... You can see how things like that are accused, but at the end, um, you know, they're politicians, they're elected by their community, they're in our parliament, and our parliament is a great uh, institution. Our democratic approach and way of life is something we're trying to preserve in as Australia's security service. So I want to get on to foreign interference and espionage. You disclosed in your speech this week that ASIO had last year investigated a nest, nest of spies. First of all, is nest, is that a collective term? Is that accepted in the in the business as the collective term for spies? Um, that's what does that question. mean? It, what's the collective noun for spies? Um, a nest of spies was in the speech. Yes. Uh, well, it's kind of, it, it just described it nicely because it was more than one. They were buzzing. They were busy, as I said. And in, in that you disclosed that um, uh, they were targeting defence information. You talked about they were targeting politicians, foreign, a foreign embassy and state police force, um, and that they had subsequently been removed from the country. How does that happen? How, how do you um, execute that sort of operation where you then remove them from the country? Do you ask them to leave? Uh, do you escort them out of the country? How does that sort of work? Sure. So there's a whole range of ways that can be achieved. Um, so assuming that we've, you know, when we find them, because there's a lot of work that goes up to being sure that someone is a spy and they're doing this. But uh, in this case, uh, the option we took is um, we communicated with the foreign intelligence service that owned those officers, their undeclared intelligence officers working for a foreign intelligence service, and we communicated directly with that service and we suggested it would be wise if they left the country by a certain date. Does undeclared mean they were on diplomatic No, undeclared simply means they're here in the country and they have not declared to us that they're foreign intelligence officers. Um, So at embassies here in Canberra and high commissions, 
you have representatives from countries that we cooperate with and you will have members of foreign intelligence services or foreign security services like ASIO actually posted openly into other countries so we can talk to each other. And that's a good thing. Sometimes, however, uh, foreign intelligence services put spies, so undeclared intelligence officers is the terminology we use, just simply did not declare who they were really working for. What they were doing and the cover they used, um, I won't talk about publicly. Mm. And that wasn't contested, the fact that they were spies by that intelligence agency? So I won't go into the specifics here, but typically what happens in cases like this, um, the service rarely says, oh, you got us. But actually, uh, and I wasn't worried about that because it didn't matter whether they said it was them or not. We knew it was them. Didn't need to have that conversation. I was more focused on making sure they left the country and they did, which is a great thing. And they left freely and quickly and that was good. Was sensitive Australian government information um, compromised? I wouldn't talk about that publicly. Okay. And you did say in your speech that it was not a country from our region. Why did you feel it necessary to specify that it wasn't a country in our region? Did you Um, know people would jump to China? Yeah, because uh, commentators and the media always want to talk about China. Um, In my speech, I pointed out, because this is true, that actually there are multiple attempts from multiple countries, and I'm making the point it was not a country in our region, because I knew where the media and commentators would go, and in this case, they would be wrong, but it's not my job to say who it is. Mm. Is it? Do you think the security debate is too focused on China, the public debate in Australia? Oh, I'd let the public debate roll out. I personally, though, do think it's unhelpful to focus on one country because, again, every country on this planet, including our own, realises the advantage that comes from having an information edge. So almost all countries conduct espionage. Um, it's not just one. And from ASIO's point of view... We can't just focus on one because we see multiple attempts. What's the benefit of disclosing this sort of um, the fact that this nest of spies were removed from the country, found and removed? Are you trying to send a signal um, to foreign intelligence services? Well, I've been doing two things. As we said at the start of this podcast, um, the reason why I'm speaking publicly, one of them is to explain the threat to everyday Australians because I think that's important because we all share in uh, knowing about this. They need to know about it and actually helps with our collective security. Yes, um, I do have and did have some pointed messages for foreign intelligence services, but to be honest, they're smart enough to know that ASIO is here to catch spies, so I don't really need to message them. But actually it does help that you do uh, message them and you know, public presentations is one way you can do that. The other thing, though, is to... Bring it real. You talked about legislations being introduced. So the espionage and foreign interference legislation was introduced. ASIO's bill was amended um, as a direct result of the threat environment. And those legal tools and capabilities and the investments we get actually help us do the job. And this is demonstrating we're doing the job, which I also think is incredibly important. Mm. Uh, you said that um, in the last 12 months, a significant number of foreign spies and their proxies have either been removed from Australia or rendered inoperative. Some of our readers have asked, what does rendered inoperative mean in this context? Yeah, it's a, um, it simply means that they know the gig's up and they know we're onto them and that actually stops them from doing it. So they're, they're still in Australia, but they just don't do it? Some of them would still be in Australia, but they won't be doing it because yeah. they know we're onto them. And that's actually 
okay by me because the key thing is, you know, they can be here if they haven't broken the law yet. Um, then they don't need to be prosecuted and they're free to be here and we want them to be here, but we just don't want them doing this or supporting spies doing their thing. It's it's actually uh, fair all round, I think. The Counter-Foreign Interference Task Force, um, you said, has investigated over 30 cases. Do you think that the general public understands what foreign interference means and, and politicians as well? Uh, and how it differs from influence. Mm. Now, you, uh, you're absolutely right. I don't think we all have a common view of that, and that's why we keep, I keep explaining what it is, because it is a bit of a more nuanced concept than stealing secrets, and uh, you'll hear me, hear me keep explaining that. You uh, saw last year that I wrote to all federal politicians, just alerting them to this, to call it out, um, and we'll continue to educate Australians and politicians because that's important. And I guess I've just finished with a sort of um, open question. What is What do you think the biggest misconception is in the general public about the way ASIO operates? Um, that's a great question. I think it's many-fold. I, I actually think most Australians are appreciative of ASIO existing and they just want us to get on and do the job quietly without much fuss. I'd be one of them because that's the way we like to operate. Um, but there is a little bit of a history and, you know, we are a spy-catching organisation. There's been a bit of political history around, um, you know, us allegedly you know, spying on the government itself a long time ago. Those stories live on long, those myths and legends, truth and uh, not so much truth live on. Um, that's a little bit of mystique, of course, but... Uh, People will have different views on us. Some people are, you know, don't like the idea we exist. Um, I respect their views there. Um, I can assure them, though, that um, I, as the Director of Security, I wouldn't want to live in a surveillance state. But I'm very happy to live in a state where we have laws that guide all of us and direct us and actually enable ASIO. And I'm very comfortable and I could assure them that given that we do care about what's legal and what's right. My organisation thinks about that every day. I think about that every day. And if they don't trust us, then they should trust an Inspector General who has standing powers of a Royal Commission who puts out annual reports that are very informative. Um, actually, I welcome that and I should assure them that we're not what they think we are. We're here to protect them and our country from threats to their security. Mike Burgess, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you so very much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of the show, and to Hannah Izzard, who often cuts it for us. If you are particularly interested in uh, security matters, the ASIO chief will be facing more questions in a slightly different forum when he faces politicians at Senate Estimates. That's coming up in Parliament next week. Stay tuned to Guardian Australia for updates uh, and you know all the latest from what will be a really interesting week in federal politics with all of the issues. Don't forget to leave us a review, a rating, all of that stuff. Tell your friends. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.